Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. On this, the last day of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Major General Wally Rugen gives us an update on the U.S. Army's future vertical lift effort that includes new long-range assault and armed reconnaissance aircraft. But first, joining us today is Representative Elaine Luria, the Democratic lawmaker from Virginia who represents the world's largest naval base in Norfolk. She's a retired United States Navy commander and nuclear-trained surface warfare officer who sits on the House Armed Services Committee Representative Luria, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII is sponsoring our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. And Bell is sponsoring our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. And be sure to check out our Cavus Ships podcast that is normally weekly, but has been going daily, co-hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who are taking a deep dive into every single day of this show. Uh, an absolute pleasure having you on the program, uh, as always. Uh, I think your seven-part tweet uh, right after the budget uh, came out uh, regarding the United States Navy got a lot of attention. You said, you know, you're, you're a sailor, you were going to try to control yourself, and you defined the budget as, you know, this budget sucks uh, or this budget request sucks. Um, and one of the points that Navy leaders are making is, look, you know, we have to make trade-offs. We're, you know, developing and buying the wrong kinds of ships. Uh, there are nine littoral freedom-class littoral combat ships. You know, the Navy says, well, they're, you know, the gearboxes are broken and, you know, we don't need them anymore. We need more missile shooters, but cruisers are being retired. There are two ships that are being retired. You know, each one of them, one is a cruiser, the other is an amphibious assault ship. Each one has cost about $200 million in upgrades and they're going to get retired. I, those are some of the fundamental elements of this. You know, from your standpoint, why does this budget suck despite what Navy leaders are telling you? And are they convincing you otherwise? Well, I'll start with the second part of the question. So there has been little convincing otherwise, um, because there's such mixed messages. I mean, the, the CNO example, for example, recently, you know, said we need a 500 ship Navy. Uh, that's consistent with the Battle Force 2045 plan that the last administration put out. You know, we need 300. Oh, sorry, a 500 ship Navy, about 350 manned ships, 150 unmanned. We can have a separate conversation about my opinions on on where we're going with unmanned. Um, but we're getting a message that we need a bigger Navy. But we get a budget that shrinks the Navy, wants to decommission 24 ships, only build eight, the Navy's claiming nine. Um, and it doesn't reach the end goal of you know, what's required by law, 355 ships, of which 11 carriers. And there isn't an explanation of the trade-offs. I mean, I think we all understand the challenges of the LCS class um, in the fact that it has engineering and mechanical challenges in the LCS-1 class as well as not achieving the goals as far as the three main core missions, surface warfare, anti-submarine warfare, and, and mine warfare. So they haven't fully developed the mission modules. The amount of manning has increased. The cost of operating has increased. There's, there's a lot of challenges with that class of ship, um, but there's no trade-off being given saying, you know, we, we want to decommission these, but on the other hand, we are going to leverage the industrial base to its absolute capacity, and we're gonna build everything we can build. Um, for example, they're only requesting 10, well, nine plus an option, DDGs. 
Um, the industrial base has the capability to build 15. So you're decommissioning cruisers, but you're not building flight 3 DDGs at a rate to, to, to make up for that, for the cruiser, for VLS cells, for you know, the air defense commander role. Um, so it is really a budget that seeks to shrink the Navy, but it doesn't also accompany that with the most aggressive possible plan to grow the Navy and make up for the decommissionings that they're proposing. So it's very mixed messages. Um, and I think through our process in Congress and um, the NDAA um, defense bill markup, we'll try to work through that. But I would anticipate that you know in Congress and we've already had the discussions. Um, I've already been talking to Mike Rogers, the ranking member from Alabama, and it was the conversation kind of went like this: like here we go again. Because last year he and I worked together to help get the 25 billion added to help preserve the two cruisers, speed up construction of Virginia class submarines, add additional resources to Pacific Defense Initiative. So we're on the same page, you know, some of us on both sides of the aisle that we have to, to fix this. Um, so here we go again. What are the things that have to happen for, because there are many people, and I think you're one of them who doesn't, who, who rejects the Navy's fundamental argument, right? I mean, we were doing littoral combat ship because not every mission uh, is uh, a destroyer mission. The frigates are, are, are still uh, in development. What are the things that have to happen for this request to, I guess, suck less because it's still going to suck because we're not able to bridge, right? I mean, those cruisers are old, even if they have a utility, um, right? I mean, they still have very valuable missile tubes at a time when the Navy is trying to extend its reach. And I want to ask you about that. So, so what has to happen for this to suck less? I think we need to add in more ships for shipbuilding. I do think that you know, we need to look carefully at the specific hulls that they're proposing decommissioning for cruisers, but at a minimum, the Gettysburg and the Vicksburg. And I know those two because they're based in, in Norfolk and I visited them both. And you know, the Gettysburg has the, the most up-to-date combat system and the Vicksburg is you know, in the process of having those modernizations, as you said, at the cost of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars um, to extend their service life. Um, we haven't even reached the cliff yet, essentially, because we're coming up on you know, the, the, the end of life of the Flight 1 DDGs. Um, so if we think what we're seeing now is bad, like we have to be planning and building as aggressively as possible, especially DDGs, getting the FFG program um, up to speed and expanding to a second yard at the right time, um, because there is no end in sight, essentially, to this you know, shrinking size of the Navy if we don't do something to turn it around and start building. And also looking at you know, what we can do with current platforms to extend their service life. Um, the DDGs, for example, what kind of modernizations, because you know, we're at a point um, with the, the DDG 51 and two coming online around 91. Um, so you know, if you kind of do that math um, and look across the fit up, there's over 20 DDGs that are gonna come due for decommissioning. And, and how are we approaching that? What investments are we making this year to plan for and prepare for um, what the long range plan for those ships is? Do you think, uh, you know, the, the the notion of an ounce of prevention, avoiding a pound of cure is what we saw in Ukraine. Um, it would have been a lot cheaper to have stopped Russia from being able to get in there um, as opposed to trying to punish Russia and figure out how to deal with it after the fact. Has that served as any kind of wake up call up there in, in uh, the minds of your fellow lawmakers? in terms of, hey, if we don't make this investment now, which is a big investment, we're going to pay an even bigger price downstream. Well, 
You know, I like your question because I think that we need more focus on what investments are really necessary to deter Chinese aggression against Taiwan. And are we investing in those things? Um, you know, if you wanted the ability to literally stop, impede an amphibious assault, um, you would invest heavily in things like offensive mining, long range anti-surface missiles. Um, and it's you know on the part of the Navy and the Air Force to have those capabilities and the delivery mechanisms for those things. And you know that is not something that you know, has been articulated as you know, clearly a priority. Um, and you know when we look at it, I think we should think about the scenario, like how does this scenario actually unfold? And what are the top priority things that we need in order to counter that? And a lot of the, the things that we need um, are not necessarily, the high-end AI quantum computing, a lot of these buzzwords that get thrown around. Of course, I believe in research and development and developing weapons of the future, but you know, are we really focusing on the sense of urgency that we need to have today? Um, Admirals Davidson and Aquilino said last year to the Senate that it's likely that China could try to take Taiwan by force in the next six years, now five years. Um, I do not feel that the sense of urgency that I get from commanders in the Pacific themselves versus what I get from leadership in the Pentagon, I don't feel like they're in sync. Um, and I'm not sure why that's not being really communicated and the situation sense of urgency isn't being portrayed enough in my opinion. And I think that if we have a singular focus, if we have a strategy that creates requirements and those requirements drive the palm and the budget, you know, I think that this would be a lot easier for the Navy, all the services to explain their priorities and the risk of not investing in, in things that have been left out of this budget. You, you talked about um, speed. One of the things that Secretary Del Toro uh, told me uh, yesterday uh, after his remarks, uh, we had a brief uh, conversation, was the, and he said it in his remarks as well, right? We kind of moved, have moved kind of too quickly in developing uh, Navy programs. He was talking, he was in Ken Krieg's office at the time the littoral combat ship uh, was born. Um, you know, we sort of moved quickly, but then we moved really slowly, taking two decades to actually not really get a lot of utility out of these ships before we've decided to retire them. Um, that's, you know, some say the Navy hasn't wanted to make it work. Others say, you know, there are technological problems. My sense is if you have bad gearboxes, don't accept ships that have bad gearboxes, have the contractor fix those gearboxes. But more broadly, the Navy then went to a frigate, said, we want to go, we want to build these fast, we want an off-the-shelf design, got an off-the-shelf design, then, you know, has, has been re-engineering the ship, redesigning the ship effectively to the point where it hasn't even sealed the design down and hasn't even cut steel on it yet, right? How do we have to change? So you're saying we have the industrial capacity, what are the things that have to change in order for us to be able to get the right ships in volume? Because at this rate, 2027 will be long gone before we field anything new rather than end up retiring a ton of stuff. Yeah. So I think back to, you know, sort of the three predominant crudez ship classes that were developed, you know, during the Cold War towards the end and have evolved to what we have today with the DDG. So, I mean, if you think about what we did with this Bruins class destroyer, and then we took that haul and added the Aegis weapon system with the cruiser. 
And then we took that weapon system to a new hall and mechanical system and had the DDG. And we had like an evolution of, you know, mechanical systems as well as weapon systems, and then have been able to add additional capabilities to that over time. With the LCS class, you know, we just jumped into something completely different, aluminum hull, different engineering system, you know, and, and completely different mission set. Um, you know, I think what we're, we're, the situation we're in now is, you know, we have limited choices of what we can build today. Um, so as I said a little earlier, I think we need to leverage and build at maximum capacity with that. And that would be DDGs. I think we need to continue the LP17 production line. I think they've um, proposed to cut it off with advanced procurement for Hall 33. Yet the program was supposed to go to, I think, 42 or 43. Um, and I think that, um, you, you know, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on the frigate program. We did take an off-the-shelf design and, and redesign it um, and cause significant delay. Um, and I, I do feel like within that program, you know, the Navy is being very careful about making sure the design is adequately mature before we move forward through each step, because they think they've seen some of the failures they've had um, on, on LCS TTG 1000, for example. Um, but, you know, we spent two decades supporting ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So our mission set was very different than using the multi-mission capability of a crewed as ship, you know, doing anti-submarine, anti-air, you know, long range land attack, you know, all of the um, capabilities of the ship were not uh, fully leveraged in, in the role that we used for, for that two decade period. Um, and there wasn't a lot of priority on keeping those ships um, maintained, modernized, and really building the replacement classes of them. If you think about DDGX, DDG 1000, we're supposed to build 32 of those. We only built three and we've uh, abandoned the, the main weapon system on that ship. And even the frigate, I mean, if you think about it, we're building a ship that has one third the capability of a DDG, but two thirds of the cost. Um, you know, so why were the particular characteristics of that design selected? Why do we only look to build the highest end platforms? Because, you know, I think I've said this before that I think quantity has a quality of its own. Um, I think there is a role for lower end platforms, more dispersed force, the laws, for example, which are, you know, a program that will be built to support the Marine Corps EABO um, concept along with Naval Strike Missile and Dispersion. It's an inexpensive platform that we could build quickly. We could build in high numbers and we could, you know, rapidly bring more resources to the fight um, if we actually give the Marine Corps the mechanism by which to get there. Um, so I don't know if that is fully answering your question, but, you know, I think there's kind of a lot of things to look back and reflect on and, and looking forward. But if you're just asking, like, what can we do today? We can build as many DDGs as we can. We can make sure that we have a mature design of the FFG and speed up production as, as quickly as we can. And we can't forget submarines. I mean, Virginia-class submarines, um, we need to, to build those as, as rapidly as we can. And you know, going to the number one priority, the Department of Defense um, being the Columbia-class, we need to make sure that that program um, you know, stays on, on track because it is part of the nuclear triad and that is the cornerstone of our national defense. Um, uh, we're, our time is short. Two uh, quick questions. Um, you mentioned the importance of submarines, obviously, in part because of uh, the um, investment the Chinese are making in missiles to make basically everything on the surface of the water significantly vulnerable, right? 1,000 mile range anti-ship missiles. We have harpoons that are 80 miles on a good day if they're working, uh, you know, and, and, and as we, you know, you and I were talking before we got started, fairly rudimentary compared with um, what we need. What are the kinds of long range effectors 
does the United States Navy need? Because it, it doesn't seem to have sort of an integrated vision, does it? I mean, what, what is it we need out there on these ships in volume for the task that faces us? Um, well, you know, I think, as you said, the submarines really bring the advantage to the fight um, because obviously they're stealth um, and, you know, can increase the range, you know, kind of beyond the standoff range created by the disparity and the different missile ranges that we have for our surface ships. But, you know, I do think that um, we need to bring online, um, you know, the, the capabilities that are being developed with the, the Naval Strike Missile and, um, you know, really need to focus our efforts on developing a longer range anti-surface missile. I think with capabilities like the LRASM, which can be, you know, air launched, um, the ability to, um, you know, add LRASM and in sufficient numbers, as well as delivery platforms for that. And, you know, that's Navy and Air Force having the capability to do that. I think those are important investments. Um, I also think, you know, like I said earlier, some more rudimentary um, things like, uh, you know, the ability for offensive mine laying is important. Right. Um, so, you know, really looking as well for the Navy to come out with, you know, here are the things that we're doing to catch up um, in this, um, you know, sort of uh, to this disadvantage that they have with regards to the range um, and capabilities of the um, surface launched anti-surface missiles. Let me ask you one last uh, question. Um, uh, Commandant uh, of the Marine Corps, General Berger, has been uh, driving a revolution and it has caused an insurrection in the ranks of uh, retired uh, general officers. Uh, one of the questions here uh, is sort of a sense that that what the Navy wants to do and what the Marine Corps want to do are not as integrated as they need to be. For example, the law, the light amphibious warship was seen as a complement to the big deck amphibs, not a one for one replacement, for example, is is the Navy and the Navy leadership and without trying to put uh, Carlos del Toro on the spot because, uh, you know, he's new to the job and trying to move the needle. Are you satisfied with the degree of integration between what the Navy's vision of the future is and what the Marine Corps vision of the future is and that those gaps are being bridged meaningfully from your standpoint? Well, you know, I think that the most um, valuable conversations I've had in order to inform, you know, whether these are you know, operationally useful in parallel and, you know, sim simultaneously is, you know, with the Indo-PACOM commander. Um, I know that, you know, last summer I had the opportunity to um, speak to him and this uh, large-scale global exercise was ongoing and, you know, that integrated completely the capabilities of both the Navy and the Marine Corps. And it was an opportunity to test uh, some of these concepts. And so I would certainly say um, from the combatant commander's perspective, from the conversations I've had with him, um, as well as with the Commandant of the Marine Corps, um, that they, there is definitely a vision in which these you know, capabilities um, you know, work in tandem uh, to accomplish their goals. Thank you so very much for joining us. It's always an honor having you on the program, ma'am. Great. Well, thank you for having me again. And now a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And joining us from the sidelines of Quad A, the Army Aviation Association of America's annual conference in Nashville, Tennessee, is United States Army Major General Wally Rugen, who leads the Future Vertical Lift cross-functional team at U.S. Army Futures Command. Sir, we know how very busy you are down there at Quad A. Thanks so very, very much for joining us. It's great to be with you and to talk to your listeners about, uh, you know, our passion of 
for taking Army Aviation into the future. Indeed, sir. And, uh, you know, these these programs have been ongoing uh, for uh, some time, even though you're trying to execute them as quickly uh, as possible. I feel like I've got to ask this question. Uh, and, and hopefully when we talk to Major General Francis, uh, the chief of Army Aviation, we're going to be asking him as well. Uh, and we understand that certainly on the requirements side, that's his uh, obligation and responsibility. But the world is looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine for all manner of lessons, you know, asking about the relevancy of the tank, for example, uh, in a battle space dominated by unmanned or loitering systems, or a new generation of very powerful anti-tank guided weapons. Uh, and certainly people are making, um, you know, certainly asking questions about the future of uh, armed attack helicopters uh, in particular. From, from your standpoint, as somebody who's overseeing this uh, very, very important portfolio for the Army. What are the lessons you're drawing from what you're seeing uh, from operational experience? And what are the lessons actually you're not drawing, right? Because there's there's a tendency sometimes, um, you know, for example, the United States Army would fight very, very differently than how the Russian forces are, are, are fighting. Give us sort of your sense on, on what part of this you're looking at, you and your team are looking at, that uh, would, would cause you to change or trim your sails at all uh, on, on, on either of the programs that you're overseeing that? Yeah, I mean, one, I think it's very early in the conflict and um, we have to ensure we get good uh, analytical data uh, and put some analytical rigor before we, we draw conclusions. Uh, but questions certainly are appropriate. And uh, like the you know wide population of people you're talking about we are asking those questions of the uh, intel community and uh, generating that running estimate um at a you know higher classification level um you know commenting on this is is a bit premature um but it looks to me um that we would fight much differently um and that's just probably my first um very basic uh observation um, when we talk about our fight, um, both in the uh, armed reconnaissance, uh, our attack, tactical tasks, and then uh, air assault, um, obviously we, we do the majority of our flying and fighting at night, and uh, we will always set the conditions um, and generate standoff to get stand-in effects that will will generate that overmatch. And... Um, that's how I was brought up, um, both in conventional and, and uh, special operations aviation units. And uh, that's what we're funneling into our requirements and funneling into our capability development. Both of these uh, programs have been in development on set requirements. Do you, do you foresee any modification in requirement? And if that would be required, how would you execute that? Just purely out of curiosity. Yeah, I think, again, um, we don't have set requirements right now. We have a set of attributes that are tiered. Uh, we've gone about this far differently in Futures Command. We are flying before we buy, so you're seeing an aggressive uh, prototyping effort. Uh, that prototyping effort ensures our efficacy against our pacing threats in our pacing theaters. We have to prove that out with uh, analytical data. Uh, and then obviously there's an affordability aspect to it, which uh, we are looking very intently on. So um, this prototyping effort feeds our abbreviated capability development documents that we go to our, 
Army Requirements Oversight Council's on. These AROC events um, are chaired by Army senior leaders, typically the chief. Uh, at times, it gets delegated to uh, the vice uh, chief of staff of the Army, but predominantly it's the chief of staff of the Army. And so that um, those decision uh, briefs are routine um, and uh, lengthy and exhaustive and uh, in a good way, the rigor is there. Um, so, you know, if we have to change, we still have time. Um, and again, we, we have chosen a much more innovative way to go about um, our requirements generation with starting with attributes that are tiered and then flowing that into a prototype flying before we buy, and then informing something that is achievable, affordable, and effective. And again, effective against our pacing threats in our pacing theaters. I, I want to go to the two programs and the down-select decision. Flora is going to be uh, first up. The down-select decision is expected uh, to be this summer. Uh, the two competitors, obviously, are, are Boeing and Sikorsky uh, team together uh, against Bell. And I should note for our audience, right, Bell is the sponsor of this program. Sir, do you have everything that you need from both of the competing teams uh, at this point, is there any additional information you need from them? And is that down-select decision uh, going to happen in the summer? And if so, when this summer? So, you know, obviously, uh, in, a, in any down-select, um, the contracting officer is, is the lead agent on that. And, uh, you know, honestly, the, the source selection is a double blind from me. So not only do I not know who's on uh, the board, but I, uh, I do not know when that down select will occur at the precise date. Um, and we do that obviously for, uh, reasons to keep it very, again, uh, a purely, um, database decision. And so we're trusting the process on that. Um, so we are in our quiet period with, uh, Flora. Uh, the only thing that I'm, uh, really working on intently with the Flora program is, our uh, medevac prototyping. So we, we are prototyping the, uh, the cabin that will be going into the uh, medevac variants of our flora. And NAVAIR, the guys on Apax River, are, are doing that prototyping effort right now, looking forward to uh, getting our uh, flight medics and our uh, providers in the back of that cabin prototype to uh, ensure that we're building it um, with their express um, needs and requirements uh, to, you know, again, achieve that golden hour in a transformational manner. Um, and yeah, I know, I know that your, your uh, listeners are, are waiting intently for uh, more information on this uh, decision. Again, I think the Army is committed to uh, keeping the program on time, and uh, I would anticipate that decision uh, in the fourth quarter of this fiscal year, no later than. Give us a, kind of a quick update on where we are on the FAR program. Obviously, Flora uh, is is uh, first. At first, you guys didn't want to move the armed reconnaissance uh, ahead of Flora, but you guys decided to stick with the, the schedule. Give us an update on when you expect uh, sort of the next train of events to down select on FARA, because uh, obviously you want to get both of these programs going as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, the FARA competitive prototypes are being built, uh, one by Lockheed Martin and, and one by Bell. Um, happy to report that, that those uh, prototypes are approximately 85% built. Um, and you have to go back to really understand the impressiveness of uh, the pace that uh, industry and the government team has moved out. You know, our first 
appropriated dollar uh, from Congress in the FARA program was in April of 2019. And so uh, three years later, um, we're 85% built on those uh, prototypes. Still looking uh, with uh, some some risk, but still looking at flying in fiscal year 23, which is absolutely uh, smoking fast. Very pleased with the uh, the pace of both fenders. Um, and again, you know, both vendors will use a government furnished equipment engine, which is the ITEP. We have been working on ITEP uh, for quite some time, uh, delivering, um, again, some cutting edge capability in turbine engine advancement. And, uh, you know, that's taken some extra time. And the reason I go back to, you know, when we had our first appropriated dollar, because at that time we asked, um, the ITEP program to accelerate by year off the program baseline and to get a bit wonky, you know, the program baseline was for that engine to go into Apache and Blackhawk. And when we decided that FARA would also take that engine, um, we asked for that one year acceleration and, and with the pandemic and some other problems with, um, you know, again, the collapse of commercial air and, uh, and some other problems uh, associated maybe with 737 MAX, we did not achieve that full year acceleration. And uh, so, you know, that is probably the one risk area that we're most concerned of right now is the engine. But uh, we have seen the first engine to test fire off last week and uh, pleased with GE and, and all the work they're doing. Um, and so we'll continue to claw back uh, schedule to uh, get that engine delivered to the uh, uh, industry teams out of Lockheed Martin and out of Bell. And I should point out to the audience, right, ITEP is the uh, improved uh, turbine engine program. And I think it began, began in something like 2009. Uh, and as I recall, it was just before Quad A in 2019 that General Electric, with the, I think it's the T901, uh, yes. won, uh, won that uh, competition. Um, are you concerned? I know, sir, that General Barry is the leading the engine effort. But from your standpoint, or do you see any sort of major challenges in the engine that's going to affect your your program at all? I no, mean, I don't. And, and again, this is this is such cutting edge technology that I think um, we should have a bit of patience, and we should understand how late in the game that we asked for an acceleration, and understand the uh, the huge hurdles that were really put in in front of the industry team that was trying to you know react to those that acceleration request from the army so um no i don't have any any concerns and uh in fact seeing the engine um conduct a number of starts and uh go to full power uh here <clears throat> at sea level so they they were at uh, a little over three thousand shaft horsepower this week again um very good um outcomes there. A lot more to do, right? Don't want to declare a uh, victory. There's a lot more to do and, and engines are tough, tough work, but uh, it appears currently that we've had a good start. Uh, it, it is it is an extraordinary series of goals just uh, for the audience, right? I mean, you're talking about a 3000 shaft horsepower engine that's supposed to burn like a quarter percent less fuel and have extraordinarily uh, long intervals between major maintenance, which is uh, yep. astonishing for any. I mean, you guys are looking at more thousands of hours, right? I mean, it's more than 5,000 hours or so meantime between failures is what you're looking at, right? I mean, I think it's even higher than that, isn't it, sir? 
But we are looking for improvements in mean time between failure and time on wing. Uh, and again, to get uh, technical, the specific fuel consumption, which is that gas mileage, uh, at least attain uh, attain 13% um, improvement on that. Uh, but obviously, up to 25 is our um, objective goal, and and not just the threshold goal. Yeah, uh, it's uh, and again, pretty astonishing. Uh, well over 40% less parts. And that's really what allows us to attain uh, more time on wing uh, because there's just less parts to a brake. And, and again, the manufacturing of that engine um, is really innovative and uh, we're going to leverage that innovation um, for our soldiers. Um, let me ask you, I'm uh, going to go into a little bit of a, a, a lightning round because I do have to ask you about the edge uh, exercises uh, that you're con uh, conducting. Um, the experimental demonstration right, gateway, I'll, I'll let you explain it, but I, I want to get to that in a, in a, in a second. Uh, but let me ask you a justification about FARA. Um, there was okay. a lot of speculation that the FARA program uh, might actually be uh, curtailed from uh, an Office of Secretary of Defense perspective, that unmanned systems and uh, different sorts of loitering munitions may be a better way to execute that mission than a manned uh, platform, a man attack uh, helicopter, recon armed reconnaissance helicopter. What's the case to be made for an armed manned reconnaissance aircraft on the battlefield from, from your perspective, right? I mean, why is the FAR yeah, again, I mean, we've, still we've, legitimate? Yeah, I mean, we've studied this um, exhaustively across all the services. I mean, we've leveraged well over 35 studies across all the services, um, you know, on the man versus unmanned. And what we've seen really is um, unmanned is, is very good for, for dull um, work, you know, work that just takes, um, you know, 24 seven staring at, at something. Um, the dirty work where you could see a, a chemical bio or a radiological threat and then um, extremely dangerous uh, areas that are uh, intensively high threat. Um, but when it comes to our tactical tasks that we need for our armed CAV recon uh, squadrons, um, there really is a whole host of capabilities that um, trained crews provide. And it fundamentally boils down to a low latency. When one of our um, European scenario um, in our battle lab, we saw 50,000 interactions between uh, sensors and our cockpit, um, and the cockpit being either a manned or unmanned um, cockpit. And what we saw there was, uh, you know, a ton of really concrete um, um, outcomes and, and observations, but just put that into a network. And you, well, how would you transport that back to the unit of action? And what you see in these multi-domain um, fights, in our war games, in our tabletop exercises, but also in our modeling, is that the man platform provides a capability to understand commander's intent, to understand visual reasoning, which is seeing in 3D, uh, to very low latently either uh, address a threat or dismiss something as not a threat. Um, it, uh, a cockpit that is filled with aviators understand they're being engaged and what they're being engaged by, whether it's effective fire or not. 
And then there's a bit of multitasking that just doesn't come with the current sensor package. And so as we do our zone reconnaissance, um, you may come upon an enemy and have to perform a hasty attack very quickly. Well, our unmanned systems are not necessarily equipped to transition from one tactical task to the other. And we saw, again, a latency associated with that. So why do I keep bringing up latency? What we're seeing in Ukraine is certainly our enemies fire on detect. They fire uh, indiscriminately. And as the U.S. Army and our values, we fire on identify. We have to identify any target we're shooting and clear those fires. And so we're all already um, have an extra step in our joint kill chain. And if you're going to buy that back and we're going to have uh, the ability to exercise our targets faster than our enemy that's far more indiscriminate, you're going to need the best team forward to work those uh, complex problems. And what we're seeing and what the other services have seen in a number of exhaustive studies is this uh, capability at the tactical edge. Now, I will say too that um, we're taking unmanned and manned teaming to a far greater level. And this is where our edge event, uh, our experiments out at our Western test ranges, in this case, it'll be Dugway, Utah, where we have a mix of manned and unmanned aircraft with standoff and stand-in capabilities to generate overmatch um, against our pacing threats that really is at a tempo and a battlefield geometry that can break uh, our enemies because we just out-tempo them. And, and again, that's what we're interested in. We're interested in, in uh, winning, and, and winning does matter, you know, per our chief. So um, studying it very aggressively, and I'll give you a very long answer. Um, and again, making sure the analytical rigor is there to uh, prove some of these um, assertions. And what we're seeing is that the manned, unmanned teaming uh, is the best um, capability development going forward. Uh, I, sh I should say, uh, you're, you are channeling uh, a little bit of history here, sir, because uh, General Sullivan, uh, Chief of Staff of the United States Army, when I started covering it in uh, the early 1990s, would talk about Comanche and its role as the quarterback of the digital battlefield of the future. And very much you guys are looking at this platform to be that man-on-man -man teaming node on the battlefield and to be part of where all of this data gets synthesized uh, in, yep. in, in, in a lot of respects. Yeah, and I, I would just comment at, at Project Convergence 21 and in Edge 21, we were out at, at Dugway. So these are our, our exercises where we're taking our emerging technologies and concepts out there and fighting them against uh, live threats. What did we see? What was the so what? We were faster in, in all domains. We were faster in all domains at uh, greater distances. Uh, we were far more lethal. And because we were able to have this teaming, we were able to stand off outside of uh, weapon engagement zones of things hunting us, and we could effectively hunt them. Um, and again, so important for the, the future of Army aviation. You know, our Hellfire used to generate that standoff at eight kilometers. Well, now we're seeing um, a need to stand off in excess of 35 kilometers, right? And and that generation of that uh, standoff, but still having stand-in effects that create decisive results are what we're seeing at, uh, at these uh, events and at these experiments. 
and it's joint. We're aggregating joint intel, multi and sensing in space, air and ground, and we're aggregating joint uh, fires. And so we've done the workups with fifth gen fighters, tip and cue them, and had fifth gen fighters tip and cue us. Uh, again, two threats, uh, a lot of electronic warfare uh, work, a lot of uh, swarming work with our, our drones. And again, it's all to uh, conduct that penetration uh, with operational maneuver. And let's not, you know, um, forget our doctrine, right? We need intelligence, we need fires, but we also need maneuver. You have to maneuver uh, to a position of advantage to dominate an, any enemy. And I think, again, some of those lessons are, are coming out of uh, the Ukraine, and we'll be sure to uh, capture them and inform our you know, way ahead. Uh, sir, thanks very much. Very, uh, really appreciate you spending so much time with us and very excited to have the conversation with you going forward. Uh, I think it's really uh, impressive uh, that you uh, and your team uh, and is working with uh, not just the United States Air Force, but as well as the Navy to be able to do this as uh, the F-35 is a critical platform for the other services and how to be able to share in, in the extraordinary intelligence gathering capabilities of that platform and be able to share it. So it gives us hope for JADC2 uh, at the end of the day. For sure. And, and I think the other case we're making is for that high-low mix. I mean, we want an enemy that has to face multiple dilemmas. And when you come in high and low, when you bump the stops of a lot of their algorithms and a lot of their weapon systems, again, we're making it an unfair fight. And that's what we want to do. We want to make it unfair. That's the American way of war. Uh, sir, thanks very, very much. Best of luck to you. Uh, keeping our uh, fingers crossed for uh, down select and all of that, but really would love to have you back on also to talk a little bit in greater detail about these exercises. Uh, thanks so much again. Really appreciate it and hope you had a great quad A. We did, Vago. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.